Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and I am so excited to kick off our journey into the world of micro-budget filmmaking with one of its greatest champions. Noam Kroll is an award-winning filmmaker, podcaster, and educator. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he is one of, if not the greatest teachers of filmmaking in the world today. Through his social media channels, his weekly newsletter, and his blog, he has spent over a decade creating a literal treasure trove of resources, tutorials, product reviews, how-to guides, literally everything you need to be an independent filmmaker, and he provides it all completely free at gnomecroll.com. Now, in addition to all this, Gnome hosts a podcast, Show Don't Tell, which is dedicated to micro-budget filmmaking, in which he not only talks about his own work, but interviews independent filmmakers from all over the world. And if that wasn't enough, he is also an incredibly talented and innovative filmmaker. He shot his most recent feature film, Disappearing Boy, as a one-man crew. It looks absolutely gorgeous, and he documented how he did it through his blog and podcast. I am incredibly honored to welcome on the show, Mr. Noam Kroll. Noam, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much again for the super generous intro, and um, just so excited to be here and talk to you and, and be on your amazing show. Oh my God! I uh, let me just let me just start off by saying. I am a huge fan, in case you couldn't already tell. You know, I was introduced to your blog in 2014. Oh, wow. Oh, so you've been following it for a while. And and it was right, that time was right when I began my shift from being primarily an actor to becoming a self-taught filmmaker. I think at the time I was uh, deciding whether or not to purchase a GH4. Um, okay, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so, so it definitely feels like a million years ago. And, yeah. um, you know, after that first article... You know, I added gnomecroll.com to my bookmarks bar. It has been there ever since. And it, it's just been such an amazing resource. I, I want to start off by asking, what was the creative impetus for you to start the blog all the way back? Was it 2012? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I technically started it in um, 2012. I actually almost started blog in like 2010. And, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I, I really did it in 2012. But um, yeah, it started because a couple of things like I discovered a few blogs at the time that were just so helpful for me. And I just thought like, these are amazing. Uh, I'm learning so much. And I could kind of look behind the scenes a little bit and tell that the bloggers were, you know, building also like a good creative career for themselves by having a platform and having an audience to showcase their work with. And I just thought like that was so cool that they were doing that. But I didn't really think much about like I had no business plan. I wasn't trying to like collect emails from people or any of this stuff. Like now that's, a, a you know, I've turned it into a bit more of a strategy. But back then it was just I just want to share stuff and hopefully people will find it interesting or helpful. 
Um, and then another big part of it was I was moving. I'm from Toronto, Canada originally, and I was trying to move here to L.A., and um, just to have any sort of like visibility online, I thought would be an asset. So for me, a big part of having the blog was just, you know, if I meet someone and they search my name, I just want something to show up so I could get hired for something or whatever. Uh, so it really didn't start as like, this is going to be a core part of like my career or anything. It was just, I thought it would just be this thing I did on the side and it kind of like grew to be um, a big like cornerstone of, of like the, you know, whole filmmaking kind of model that I'm following, at least for now. Um, again, then it's grown into like the podcast and things in more recent years. But but yeah, that's cool. You've been following since then, because it it's also evolved a lot. Like 2014, at the beginning, I was like more camera heavy. And then I, as I my interest changed, you know, I just start talking more about like story or filmmaking or like, whatever, like anything that I find interesting, that's not just gear. And, you know, some people didn't like that as much other new people came on. But uh, I'm glad to hear you're one of the people that sort of, you know, has been around for a while. That's cool. Now, going even further back in your own story, uh, is there like a light bulb moment for you when it comes to micro budget filmmaking? Was there a movie that you saw that inspired you or a, a director you worked with that was like, this is the path I want to pursue? No, you know, that's a great question. I don't think there was any one moment. I think it's a combination of like two things. I think like it was like almost like a something that teed it up and then something that kind of uh, followed through. So I think the tee up is just my natural kind of wiring as a person. I always was just very DIY with everything. Like if I um, did anything that I liked, if I went to like a play as a kid, I would like go and recreate the play at home. Or if we went to Disneyland, I'd try to like build the rides in my house or like I was just trying to DIY my way into like recreating experiences and things that I liked. Um, and then so when I was interested in filmmaking, like I never even thought about like that there was a right way to make films or that I should learn how to make films, um, which like maybe that would have been better if I did. But but the way that I was like kind of wired and am, it's just like, oh, like, that's cool. Like, you know, let me ask myself how to do that. And I would try whatever like method it was that made sense like okay well you need a camera to make a film so where can i get a camera like i need an actor like how do i get an actor i'll ask one of my friends so it was just born out of like this diy spirit so that was sort of like teeing it up and i think like in terms of movies that i saw like there were movies that i saw later that sort of reinforced um that this is a viable uh, path to be on and the one like i i brought up many times and it's funny because it's not that it's like my favorite movie of all time, although I do really like the movie. Um, but it was more just that it hit me at the right moment. Um, there is this movie, Another Earth, that came out like probably around 20, I don't know, like 20, I, I actually don't remember the exact year, 2010, maybe or 2011. Um, I'm probably getting that wrong. But uh, anyway, it was it was done for like $50,000. It went to Sundance, it did really well. It, it you know, it, Britt Marling was, uh, you know, part of the team behind it. And she was in it. And it was it was this great movie. And I saw it in the theater. And I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. Like these people are making uh, a movie that goes to Sundance with $50,000. Um, it's going like I'm seeing it in Toronto at this like, you know, great theater at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, And like people are discussing the movie. And like, to me, if something can be done like that, and then it reaches that many people like that has more excitement in it to me than 
just somebody that had a hundred million dollars and they could pay to advertise to enough people to go see the movie. Like I loved those movies that beat the odds. So I think once I started seeing movies like that, that were actually doing it, it just kind of reinforced, you know what, like, yeah, I should follow my instincts, not because that's the only path, but that's the path that I'm already on. So and it's a viable path. So why not, you know, try to continue that as much as possible? I definitely relate to sort of that, that just natural curiosity that has for mm-hmm. better or worse led me down, yeah. led me down this <laughs> path. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, whether as on your journey as a independent filmmaker or on your journey with a blog on your blog as an educator, have there been moments of doubt along the way? Have you had moments where you're like, oh man, like maybe I should just try to go, you know, work at an agency or where yeah. you get like every single day, like literally every <laughs> single day of my life. Like before this call, there were things I was thinking about where I was just like, but that's why I try to talk so much to other filmmakers, especially now that like I have, you know, a, a modest sort of audience and there are people that, um, thankfully, you know, have responded well to some of the stuff I've been putting out. And and they think that like, I just never want to share the impression that like, it, it's all easy or that like, I don't struggle with this stuff either. Because the truth is that like, I very much do. And the only reason I've achieved anything that I have is because like, I'm so fearful of uh, not achieving things that like the only option is just to keep going and keep trying and keep working through those, those, um, you know, moments of self doubt, but like that never goes away. Like I I do not feel any different today than I did when I first started other than that. I, you know, I've learned things. I feel like I can do things more quickly and I can hopefully uh, I've grown a bit as like an artist or how I communicate with people and things like that. But like, uh, yeah, I definitely, you know, on every level, you know, feel doubt. And that's again, why I try to like tell people like, I know for a fact, like people way above my level are doubting themselves every day. So like, don't think because you doubt yourself and you're just starting that that means you're not a good filmmaker. That just means you probably are a better filmmaker than somebody that has no self-doubt and no self-awareness that like, you know, they might just think everything that they do is great, you know, and and it's never great. So you have to, you do need a little bit of self-doubt almost, um, but, uh, you know, not not so much that it becomes detrimental. You know, one of the things that I admire most about your work and that I've just always loved is that, you know, quality is sort of like just the base level. You know, it's like the given. And from there, you do this incredible job of uh, sharing and communicating and promoting what you're doing. And, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, creative people, myself included, really struggle to kind of like put themselves out there. And I think for me, it kind of comes from a fear of being perceived as inauthentic or Mm -hmm. self-serving somehow. And uh, honestly, this podcast has been kind of the first thing that I've, that has forced me to really work on that. And I've looked to you as someone who, you know, opens themselves in a really authentic way, like into their creative process and like even just what you're doing just then of like yeah dude i have doubts every day and like how do i get out of it i talk to other people i mean like that's that's amazing how have you kind of approached that as a part of your craft and your work that 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 authenticity Hmm, yeah that's a a good question so like how have i sort of actually put that into practice you mean in terms of yeah or even just whether it's like whether it's the practice the mental practice Mm -hmm. of kind of like uh you know sustainability keeping these like all of your educational stuff like going or in when it's time to shift into a feature film and yeah yeah, like kind of i don't know how do you how do you continue to bring yourself to the work 
Yeah, I, I think I for me, it's just following a it's always following the creativity behind it, I think is that the thing that I'm excited by whether I'm like doing just to give total opposite. So like whether I'm just, you know, planning for like boring kind of business stuff. And like, you know, what, like, what products, you know, can I make or what commercials can I do with my production company or whatever, which isn't like super boring, but it's a lot more boring than like writing a script for a movie or something where it's a little bit more cerebral. So, you know, when I look at like things that are on the total opposite, I still am always following the creative spark. So like, you know, I'm, I have to plan for business stuff, but like, how much can I tap into my creativity in that? Like, can I try to think of like innovative new tools or educational resources or things that I think that would be um, like really helpful in not only in growing my business, but also in just filling a need for something that's not there. And I think like basically everything we do can be an act of creativity. And if we see it that way, then everything can kind of be enjoyable and feel purposeful. So that makes me tie a lot of things together. And, and even though I'm doing all of these different things, I have a podcast, a blog, and I'm making films and I have a company and whatever, but the truth is they're all in my head the same thing and they're all coming just from a place of like these are just organic uh branches that are kind of growing off of my creativity um and and therefore you know i can kind of fluidly go from like one day i'm uh in cinecolor and I'm, I'm designing color correction tools and the next day i'm writing a script because i understand sort of the the way that they're connected if that makes any sense absolutely and i think it's it is another in skill that anybody thinking about pursuing independent film will need to embrace or really i think any creative person maybe any person maybe i'm maybe i'm being a little too artist centric but but this idea that you have to juggle all these things and like you were saying shifting from like okay business mind to creative mind to technician to recruiter to you know yeah. to team leader whatever and i mean and then and then of course there's the personal side to it too of like switching to family you know yes, like i yeah. have a, i have a, i have a young daughter like you know, who like needs a yeah. dad, you know, I have two now. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. It's, it's a whole other, it, it is a real challenge to, uh, be able to navigate these different roles. And cause really like the idea of this whole career is like that it's supposed to be a long game. Like mm -hmm. it's the sustainability that, that lead, that, that leads to success. I, I want to believe, you know, totally. so how have you, how do you, I mean, is it that the sense that everything is coming from the same creative tree that kind of like that unification that you feel that kind of like allows? I think so. Yeah, because I just think of it as like everything that I do, like if I'm just playing with with my three year old, you know, almost four year old son, you know, it's like that could be, you know, I, if I'm not using my creativity, like that experience won't be meaningful for either of us. But if I'm building a fort with him and we're like, you know, play fighting and what, whatever we're doing, it's like, that's actually so rewarding for me. And it builds up my creative energy, you know, and it, it, it is important time to not be spent on like working on a film or something like that. Just like if I'm doing something that's like to build my business where, you know, of course, I'd rather be on set directing or something than just figuring out like the nitty gritty of my accounting or whatever it might be on that day. But, um, but you know, I can still like understand the purpose of it because I know if I do this, this is what I need to do to pave the way to be creative and to have the time to then make a film. So I think it's just, um, yeah, a lot of it, uh, it just comes from that place. And, and I think that like, 
I just try to like not wall off. I used to really wall off the different things like, okay, today I'm working on this. And from these hours, I'm focused on that. And I'm trying to now just think of everything like my to do list. I don't even separate my business to do list and my personal to do list because it's just my life, you know, just like my I, my work day never ends. But my personal day also never ends. Like if I get a call from my son's school, like that will take priority over work. Um, but some nights, if it's like a movie night and I have to work, then I can open my laptop and sit there and, and get work done. So it's for me, it's less about like being rigid. And it's more about having this open minded attitude that like, I understand the core fundamentals of like what I should be doing, what needs to get done, what's important. And then I just need to embody that in, you know, in every moment and not feel like, um, you know, I have to do X, Y, or Z just because I put it on the schedule, but just understand like why I'm doing things. And then hopefully the right decisions and actions will kind of come out of that. I think that's so important. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that because uh, even though like I live it, I'm also very susceptible to like the myth idea of what a filmmaker's life is supposed to look like. Like yeah. I have, you know, I have all these like fantasies in my head of like what it, what it should be looking like. Yeah. And, um, without talking to other people and like hearing from other people, like what they're doing, you know, I will, I will be comparing my life to some imagined idea in my head and then using it to like make me feel worse about myself or like how I'm not yeah. just doing something right. You know, it's we like all crazy. do that. And I, I, and I know better, but like we all do that. And the truth is like, unless you've made some like billion dollar franchise movie and you're just like on a whole other level or your Peter Jackson or something like, uh, you know, your life is, is, you know, this is something I talked about recently on, I think on Twitter and also just like on a newsletter, but this idea of like how people actually make their money as filmmakers, like there's this illusion that you're, you're just paid all of this money, but like filmmakers that have made movies that we all love and respect and that have premiered at like Venice and all these big festivals and, you know, a lot of them are like still teaching film, they're professors, or they have a restaurant that they own, or they, you know, work some other arrangement, or their spouse is also working. And, you know, there's everybody has to figure it out. And like, this is not an industry where like, box office success means like the writer director is necessarily getting all that much money, unless it is a like astronomical hit. Um, and they have a lot of kind of leverage in their, you know, deal and contract for that movie. So yeah, I think it's important just from a practical sense for for filmmakers to understand that it's totally normal. Like, yes, like this sort of day job of like a celebrity director might be in its, you know, more glamorous than someone who's just like getting started. But it's really the same thing. It's about the idea that this person is uh, having to do something in between making films. Um, and that like when you see it that way, then you don't I, I think going back to like second guessing yourself, it helps you to or at least for me to not second guess myself as much, because then you don't think, well, maybe my lifestyle is an indication that like, I shouldn't be a director, because I don't just get paid to direct movies all day. But like, pretty much nobody does, you know, like, yeah. and, and most of the people we love don't, right. So I think when you see it that way, it, it can help frame it in a, you know, a more positive light. I love that. You know, and I think it ties into this other thing that I kind of wanted to bring up, which is uh, something you certainly champion and something that I believe very deeply, which is that, um, and it's also a way that I think art is like a model for living um, in a way. And it's this, you know, this faulty belief that, oh, if only I had X, Y, Z, then I would 
be so happy if I had the perfect job, or, you know, the perfect car or whatever. And then for filmmakers, it's if only I had a million dollar budget, if only I had an Ari Alexa, then I could make my movie. Yeah. And um, these thoughts are just like not true. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and having more stuff also doesn't necessarily mean you're more creative. And exactly. it's the, the limitations and restrictions of a process that lead to creativity. How did you kind of learn to embrace this idea well i think again it's almost like the the other question or like at the very beginning of this interview where i said it was almost like a two-part thing where i think part of it is like the natural that's just you know how how i operate and then part of it is experiential but i think that um yeah, as you get older, you just start to see more things and you start to, you know, have conversations with other filmmakers and you make your own films and you start to learn how things are actually done. And when you're first starting, at least from my experience, I made a lot of assumptions that were just totally incorrect. So even though I kind of had a certain, you know, um, bias toward, you know, working a certain way or, or feeling a certain way about like indie film and lower budget stuff or whatever, like, you know, I still bought into a lot of the uh, kind of ideas of like, you know, what it's supposed to look like, or what path you're supposed to take. But I realized that, like, as I get older, I think the clarity that I've I've gotten is that most filmmakers, I think most artists, and probably like your example before, like most people, you know, maybe it applies to, but most of us are just very, very, very afraid of failure, of success, of something, of ridicule. Like there's something that all of us are horribly afraid of. And a lot of people that are very afraid of things go into the arts because creativity is an outlet for your fears and, and, and for your traumas and all of these things. Um, so it can be a very positive thing in that way. But then to think of exposing that to the world and then putting a dollar value on that, especially in the case of film, where like, oh, this thing that's so meaningful to me, like somebody doesn't want to give me money for it. Like that's not just an indication of the project not being meaningful, but that's saying like I have no value. And I don't think people are consciously aware that I think it is a complete subconscious thing that's happening kind of, uh, you know, underneath the surface. But I do think that people you know, it masquerades as, oh, I need more money. I need a name actor. Um, I need the perfect set of circumstances because movies have, you know, successful movies have been made under every circumstance from no budget to $100 million budget from, you know, people doing it with a big crew to a small crew. So it, it's not that there aren't challenges, but it's possible uh, pretty much under any circumstance, you know, other than a handful where someone legitimately is, you know, uh, I could see, you know, there's a single mother with multiple kids and she's working three jobs. And like, I understand there are people, but I think a lot of the people, especially film students who like have access to gear, they have all the time in the world. They have friends that want to work on their movie for free and they're still resisting doing it. It's like, but why, like, what's the alternative to, you know, if you're not going to do it now when it's as easy as it'll ever be, then you're not going to do it when you're like 35 or 40 when you have kids and, you know, it's harder, right? So, yeah. Totally. Uh, oh, man, I... Yes, I, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I deeply relate. Having, <laughs> having waited to have a child until I uh, uh, actually uh, go ahead on my first feature, I can, it, it hurts to hear. Um, but, no, 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 no. no. But, <laughs> but here's the thing is, uh, I think it makes you, if you're, if you're someone like yourself who's going ahead with it um, anyway, 
it actually makes you a better filmmaker, I think, to have kids. And it makes you understand, you know, it makes you more empathetic. I think it makes you understand the value of time and, 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 you know, you're more purposeful with your, for me, at least, like, I feel like that has been a huge factor in just my creative growth is like having this totally different perspective now that I didn't have before. Um, and it's not about like, if you do something before you have kids or after, it's just more about like, most people aren't probably, um, I, I can't say for most people, but I would guess that most people wouldn't are much less likely to do what you're doing, you know, where you haven't made a film yet. Um, you have a family and then you're still able to will yourself to do it, which is a very hard thing to do. Um, but yeah, for people that like are younger listening to this and they're like 19, 20 years old, um, yes, you have all the time in the world, but at the same time, like all time is not equal. So just try to, you know, do it while you have the freedom to experiment on the easiest level possible, because as you get older, like things become more expensive and, and you can't do it in the same way um, without doing something crazy like I did and like shooting a movie by yourself. But like you can have like a full crew as a student and make a feature film that looks amazing with your friends and with gear you get from your school for free or wherever. So I just, yeah, I mean, I feel like everybody should be doing it, you know, especially the younger people. Yes. And if we are speaking to the 19 and 20 year olds out there, and I'm just going to pretend that I'm speaking to my 19 or 20 year old <laughs> self, I think it's, it's everything that you said with a slight caveat of if it's not, if it's not like, winning awards at Sundance or if it just even straight up sucks like that's okay too like that doesn't yes. mean you suck which I think was like you said like the fear of failure was such a dictating force and it still is I just it, it was debilitating or when I was younger yeah and and I think the best thing that happens to someone with a fear of failure is that they fail and then they see that it's not that bad. And then they just yeah. go again. And like, it's this idea of like the first film, like the first feature you make, we all put pr so much pressure on it because uh, we see, you know, we think of like, oh, okay, what did Spielberg do first or Tarantino? And like, it has to be, you know, and then we get in our heads about like what the film has to be. And that uh, prevents so many people, that itself prevents so many filmmakers from actually making something. And then, um, and I felt those things too. Like I made a whole feature film that went to festivals that I just didn't release and, you know, don't even consider like part of my body of work because I just shelved it because I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was like up to my standards for being a feature film at the time. And then I shot another feature after that and I didn't finish it. And then I made the feature Shadows on the Road that I released. And even when I released that, I felt like, well, this isn't, you know, I know this isn't perfect. And I didn't realize until later that every movie is imperfect and that everything you do, you feel like there's there's the stuff you love about it. And there's the stuff where you're like, this is this is the best version of it I could have made. Now I have to see what other people think. And there's never a moment where you just feel like, oh, I made the perfect movie. I can't wait for everybody to see it. I mean, there's like, a hand, I think like Quentin Tarantino is like one director that talks about like, I think he's kind of that guy, but that's very rare. Most people uh, are, are pretty, you know, worried about like their work and their perception of it and all of that and, and critical, like we're all, all our own worst critics. So, um, but once I put that out there and, you know, some people really liked it, some people didn't like it. Uh, I got a couple of good reviews. I got some festivals we got into. I got some we didn't get into. And I realized like, oh, okay, like 
it, it, that's like the worst case scenario is that like um, my film does like, you know, reasonably well, given how we made it, it just didn't become like an Oscar winning film. Like, and now I'm so many <laughs> steps ahead of where I was before. And then like within, you know, three months of finishing or not finishing, but like releasing that film, like I was already on set for the next film and then, you know, the pandemic hit. So that slowed me down. But now I've done the, the one after that. So like it, it but before that film, there was like a five, six year period where like I was just thinking about making a feature and I didn't do it. And it, as soon as I broke the ice of making something and then having it just be what it was going to be, then I was like, OK, now I don't care. I can just keep working and not. And I kind of get how it's supposed to go now. That's amazing. And the one thing that popped into my head was uh, talking about, you know, the the few filmmakers who are like, yes, like I've made it perfect. I think there's this other side to that, which is like, I think it's um, Wong Kar Wai talks about making In the Mood for Love in the moment realizing like, I'm never going to make anything better than this. And the depression and like the oh horrible burden that like yeah. came along with that, right? Like the filmmaker's dream, right? You make this like unadulterated masterpiece. Yeah. And as an individual, you're like, where do I go from here? Yeah, <laughs> like, no, it's true. It, it could be the, it very well be the best thing you've ever done and you'll never know, but, but it could also not. And I think that's the, the beautiful thing about creativity is like you, you almost like that parts out of your hands. So when you stop worrying about it, then you can just create stuff, put it out there and it will naturally get better because you're going to learn skills. It will, you'll, you know, if you keep doing it, you're going to become a better artist. You're going to tell stories that are more meaningful to you and do things that are, you know, just more that hopefully will connect to bigger audiences. But then, you know, you might make 10 films and, and nine of them do so, so, but like one of them just pops off. And, and if you think of it, like, that's why that's like musicians, right? Like there's, you know, there's the one hit wonder bands, but then there's also like most musicians that they put out an album and like uh, some of the songs are pretty good, but like it's the one hit song from that album that makes them a superstar. And like they have the ability to put out so ma many songs because there's a, a smaller sort of barrier to entry than there there is for filmmakers. But in the same sense, filmmakers can be following that idea of like just putting out like singles or like short films or albums or features just like keep putting them out and keep doing it over and over and over again and eventually it's going to be the right movie at the right time and something is going to pop and if it doesn't it'll be up to you to decide if you want to keep doing it or not like nobody has to keep making films but um i think we've, once you've made a few it's it's kind of addictive and it's like it's hard to stop you know for some of some some filmmakers at least i, I certainly relate i i um I shot a feature in 2016 that mm -hmm. I then spent three years editing and never finished. Yeah. And like, it just, you know, it just didn't come together. And it, like you said, it just, it wasn't up to my standards yeah. of what I thought I was supposed to be. And, yeah. um, and yeah, it's felt like, I mean, that was like probably definitely one of the hardest moments of like my creative life. Uh, but also the, like the, the addictive quality of like, I got to get back has, yeah. <laughs> you know, driven me ever since. So yeah, it's, it's, it's okay though. It's because there's two sides, if you don't mind, like just to add to yeah. that, like, I think there's two sides to abandoning a project. There's like, there's good reasons to do it too. So like, I don't think people should abandon when just because something gets hard, because I've done that and I've regretted it where I'm like, oh no, like, 
I thought there was something fundamentally wrong because it wasn't easy, but it's not supposed to be easy. And now I know that. But at the time, I, I thought it was not a good movie or whatever, not a good script. Um, so th there's that side. But the other side is like the sunk cost bias thing that like I've talked about a lot on again on like Twitter and stuff. But like this idea that just because you've put in four or five years of time into something like does that mean you need to put in another two years if it's not going the way that you want it to? Like if you forget about like the weight of like what you've already done and you're only looking ahead, like does it still make sense to go ahead with it? And in some cases, like, yeah, it stung, I'm sure equally for both of us to like make a film and have it sit on a hard drive. And it's like, wow, like, and you, you don't want to waste anyone else's time who helped you and like that weighs on you. And like, there's, there's a lot, but at the same time, it's like, if that's what it takes to get to the next project and and if you can you know use that as a positive stepping stone that's all that matters and then i think when you do finish and release something um that's when you really get to learn because then you see how people are responding and you see how you feel and like there's just this whole other side of it it's just like you know um we both are you know dads now i guess but it's like you know if someone's <laughs> pregnant and you know they're have it's like having a baby when you have a, make a movie you know and it's like it, there's this like period of the growth and it, you, nobody sees it and then it's born and it's in the world and like and that is a whole other part of uh, seeing your creativity through that lens that's so valuable to you as an artist and that's the part you can only get when you release the film so of course it's important to finish and release things but it's also okay if you have to abandon something you know if that's like i said if that's what's going to take yeah totally i the the metaphor holds because you know you give birth to a film and then it just shits and vomits all over <laughs> <you>. uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh i, I kind of want to shift here and just you know in continuing to talk about like embracing limitations yes so you embrace some major limitations on your most recent feature disappearing boy which uh if anyone, uh, everyone should go listen to Gnome's podcast. He did a podcast uh, uh, pretty recently talking about his production here. Now, you were a one man crew uh, yes. on this film, which is just which is just wild. My first question, though, is did you have the idea for the story first or did you have the idea to one man crew a movie and then write to those limitations? So uh, they both happened independently and then I kind of connected them. So basically I'd had this like kidnapping thriller idea in the back of my head for a while, like actually since my son was born, because it was sort of tapping into this like new emotional, like you're a father and like, you know, you, you have to protect this kid now. And like, you know, all these things go through your mind and it started sparking on these story ideas. So I just had that like in a drawer somewhere. And then separately, I had this project I wanted to do because another film I was trying to work on fell through and I wanted to find something. And that another example, like I'd been writing something for like a year uh, raised money, like did everything. We lost a location and blah, blah, blah. It was like a force majeure situation and the film didn't go through um and uh that was another like well do i just keep going or is it the sunk cost bias where i just want to do it because i spent all this time on it so i just said no i'm gonna do something different the universe is pointing me in a different direction that is saying you know uh maybe scale it down and do the thing you've always wanted to do which is make a movie with no crew because that would allow me so many benefits. It would give me the creative satisfaction of actually making that project. 
it would let me try a new filmmaking model that I could essentially experiment with and then share with filmmakers on my blog, which is a huge part of it for me is like showing other filmmakers that they can do this as well. Um, and then it was also that it would allow it to be more immediate and even more cost effective because I, um, because of the way I shot, it wasn't just no crew, but it was spread over many months. So I was able to like write it as we went. I didn't need a full script to start. I had an outline. I had the first act, but we could basically just start shooting, um, you know, right away. Um, and I didn't have to cast it in a traditional way. Uh, any shoot days were like very minimal expense and I was just paying them out of pocket like at random because it's not like we're doing the whole movie like three weeks back to back and I have to raise money for it or something. So it just made sense from a logistical standpoint, from a creative standpoint. And then I took this idea, like I said, in my back pocket and I was like, oh, that's the one that could probably work in this model. So then I, I sort of built it from there, uh, thinking about you know, story and, and logistics kind of intertwined. It's so badass. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's so badass, dude. I mean, like when I, when I heard you first or, uh, when I first read about you doing this, I was just like, wow, this is, I mean, this is like a fantasy that it, it's just so cool. <laughs> but it's funny because it, I appreciate you feeling that way, but it, it actually was so easy comparatively to and like again i don't want to gloss over the, how hard things can be as a creative or as a filmmaker but like compared to other features i've made like this was the easiest by far and it was because when there's no crew it's like some people picture it's a big film set and you're like one person running to tweak lights and then running over here to get the wardrobe and running but it's like no that's not at all what it is once you know you're one person on the crew everything is different the whole movie is different it's written different it's shot different uh it's, you know you're you're so casual in the approach on set it did not feel like we were making a movie it felt like we were just sitting around talking about the scenes and then before we knew it my camera was out and you know, okay let's let's try that idea and we roll a couple takes and then before we know it oh we just shot the whole scene and came up with all these new ideas because it came out of a natural place. It wasn't, all right, actors, you wait here while the AD, you know, gets the extras over there. And then uh, I look with the DP through the lens and we get the perfect light. And then everybody sort of disconnected. It was just this organic, singular organism of, you know, me and the two or three actors that would be there on a given day, just talking, filming, having lunch, you know, and it, it became, it was so enjoyable. And it was, you know, it had its moments where it was like, difficult for sure but nowhere near other films i've done so it sounds hard but i can tell people like it it's you know it doesn't have to be you know i think there's a way to do it where it's not that complicated what uh what were some of your first just um kind of technical considerations about like okay i'm combining a camera department a sound department yeah, I, I, it sounds like you mostly use natural light, but some level of kind of grip work, and I'm going to put it all on my body, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> so, so what were what were some of your priorities, and what did you decide to help you know help yourself also be a director while manning all of these different uh, elements? Yes, um, so I have a lot of gear that I already own. So I, I you know, at the time I recently sold uh, an Alexa, but at the time I had an Alexa cinema camera um, that I could have used. Um, but I also had like my Fuji X-T4 and all these other cameras, but I went with the Fuji, which is, uh, I don't think I have it on my desk. I was going to show you now, but you know, it's a very small mirrorless camera. Um, and 
it, it was this decision for me of like, that was actually very symbolic of the whole approach to the movie, which is like, this is not about trying to do something because it's the right camera. Like anyone would say like, shoot the movie on Alexa. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to walk around outside in public with like a 40 pound Alexa on my shoulder trying to pull yeah. focus on some lens that, you know, and then I'm going to have to rent more support gear for it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm going to take the camera that's easiest and most frictionless to shoot with, which I shoot with almost every day anyway, this Fuji X-T4. I know its strengths. I know its weaknesses. It's not perfect, but no camera is. I like the image on that. That's going to be my camera. I'm going to shoot on one lens because I want to do a more, even more severe limitation, avoid lens swaps, and just pick the one Leica R lens that I have that I really like that's a 50 millimeter, put it on there. That's my camera kit. My lighting kit is like the sun and any light switches in, in a room that I might go into. Um, and to me, that can look so much better than trying to recreate a Hollywood look when you only have, you know, uh, like one LED panel and then, you know, some little hair light or something. And it just ends up looking like you're trying for something that's not working as opposed to a purposeful, natural look. So, yeah, natural light, uh, X-T4 with one lens. I didn't even have a uh, like a cage or, you know, any sort of rig on it. I just used the internal stabilization, which doesn't work perfectly, but it worked well enough for the way I was shooting with it. And then I had a tripod as well. And then my sound kit was just the uh, Zoom H6 with a couple of like Rode wireless lav mics that went into it. And then, you know, after we record, yeah, there you go right there. So that was it. Um, and, you know, it depended like if, oh yeah, here, this is the one we actually, you know, I recorded the entire movie on this. Um, so this was, uh, H6 buddies. And this still has like sand all like stuck to it from our, our beach day. Like it got pretty beat up, but it, um, yeah, it was like, literally I would have it in my backpack if we were in like on the beach or something, I'd, I'd lock it, I'd hit record and I would just let it run constantly and the actor everything the actor said was going in there and uh i just picked up the camera and i figured out the syncing later and then when we were in a motel room or in like a house or something like that then i would actually um you know stop and kind of like do a quick clap slate or something like that and do it take by take but like um most of the time like outdoors that was it it was like my camera this in a backpack wireless mics and we were just kind of running and gunning i love it I love it. When you, uh, on your, on your show, when you mentioned that you shot the whole thing on a 50 millimeter lens, I, <laughs> I, I love it so much. It brought me back to, um, when I was making my first movies with my GH4 on a, a Canon nifty 50, you know, the yeah, like, oh, yeah. like, I had that plastic one. case, 50, 50 millimeter. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was doing. So I just shot like entire, like commercial, like, uh, you know, commercial, uh, films. And then also my own shorts, all just on a 50 millimeter lens. That's Cause awesome. I didn't, because I didn't know what I was doing, but it was it was really liberating to just not have to think about it. Now, now, you know, for the last five, six years, like that would be unthinkable. How could you how dare you just go to set with a 50 millimeter lens? Like plus, a, you know, especially if you have a, a crop factor on your on your camera. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, th to then think about, yeah, you, like you were just embraced that. I just thought it was so cool. And it brought me back to like my earliest days of 
That's so funny. Yeah. Well, it's true. Cause when you first start, like you don't even think about the lens or I started with like the DV cameras, like the uh, DVX 100 mini DV. And like those just had like built in zoom lenses. So I actually didn't like, I was filming for a few years before I even understood anything about focal lengths because I was just like, or sensor sizes or anything. I was just like, Oh, this is what it looks like if I go like that and zoom in, it looks bigger. And if I go like this, it looks smaller. Like <laughs> that's all I knew. And then eventually I learned, okay, now I bought a GH one or two, or I guess it's GH two. And, and that's when I actually, around the time I started my blog, I was like learning about focal lengths and, and testing them on the different crop factors. And that's when I learned it all. Um, but yeah, now it's like, you know, for sure, if I'm going to a commercial set with a client, I'm not just going to have one lens unless that's what we agree upon. But for my own film, like I just thought it was such a fun thing to try and it did create some huge challenges, but I actually like how like the, the things that came out of that were really interesting. So like, for example, there's a lot of scenes in the car. Um, so a bunch of them I shot in the car with the 50 at the beginning and they worked well, uh, even though they were so tight, they were just like, it added this sort of grittiness because normally you would just put on the 24 or whatever, but like, well, on the 50, it looks pretty, you know, unique in that sense, because it's not the obvious choice. Um, but then it became so difficult to shoot the dialogue scenes that way, that we ended up um, doing a bunch of those on green screen, which you may have seen, I did like a blog article on how we put the, yes. you know, lit a green screen with natural light, and shot the entire like all the driving dialogue scenes that way. And that let me, you know, move the 50 way back. And I could then get like, be shooting like through the window as opposed to like right up close um in the car and and yeah and then that created this whole thing that i learned about like oh i should do like all my driving stuff on green screen on a micro budget i'd rather have the money to have a process trailer and do it properly but it's like safer and faster and less expensive to do it this way so all of these sort of things came out of just like limiting to the one lens and then having to solve problems around that as opposed to trying to solve your problems with the with lens like normally you just be like oh we'll just keep driving around the block and i'll just put on the 24 and we'll do the dialogue but I feel like we got way better dialogue now because we did it in a garage and it was controlled and we could actually, we didn't have to worry that we we're going to crash the car or do something dangerous. Um, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, it, it was, it was helpful. That's interesting. I would, I would have thought that your decision to green screen the car would have come from an audio place, but you're saying that the, just the initial impulse was actually to accommodate the lens. Yeah. Yeah. Ex That's I mean, crazy. the audio would have been helpful, but um, I mean, that definitely made it cleaner, but, uh, but yeah, it was cause the hand holding that camera in a car trying, like if you picture being in the passenger seat on a 50 on a super 35, it's like, yeah. And it was cool for a couple of scenes, but I'm like, no, we can't shoot the whole movie like this. And the stabilization is not good enough at that focal length to deal with that sort of bumpiness. So yeah, yeah, it was, it oh, was yeah, one totally. of those things. So there was all sorts of those technical things we had to sort out. Now with this uh, incredible, you know, exciting and free and and freewheeling, uh, you know, production style uh, for this film, did you have a plan in mind for distribution when you began? No, not at all. And I know that's sort of like a bit against some of the advice I've given in the past, which is not necessarily to know what you're going to distribute, uh, where you're going to distribute, but at least have like, a ballpark of like, who's the film for? And how are you going to market it? And 
I feel like I kind of thought about that a little bit, maybe now that you ask me. Um, but it was very much secondary to just like, I need to make something. I haven't made something in like a few years. It's been like a pandemic and I, everybody's been, you know, and then this other film didn't work out that I was trying to make. Like, I just, I had this like craving to just like get out there and make something. Um, and that like just took me into it so quickly that um, it wasn't until we were already like three months, four months into the process that I started thinking about like, and looking at the footage and the edit and saying, okay, like, what is this turning into? And like, you know, what might I do with it for distribution? So now, like now I have some like ideas about that, which we can talk about. But yeah, at the time, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> That's very interesting. I, I'm curious. Yeah. What is, what are you thinking distribution wise for this? So uh, I've, I've thought a lot about how like the big challenge that films have is that they're made like indie films in terms of monetization, I should say the challenge they have is that the average order value of a film is so, so low. So like most people watch an indie film on an SVOD platform like Amazon, and you're literally getting paid one cent per hour. So I, I, think I can't remember if I get the math right, but I think if it's like a 90 minute film and a hundred thousand people see your movie, you get like $3,000 or something like that. So like, it's insanely <laughs> bad. Um, and, and then there's TVOD platforms like Apple, where you can, you know, put your movie up and, and, but nobody's really buying movies on there, especially indie movies. And you're up against the big blockbusters. And then the people that are getting it are probably renting it two ninety nine. Apple's giving you $2. So like when you crunch the numbers, you realize that like if you go through the traditional means, you, the only way to make money is by having like a mass audience, which is why the studio movies work out sometimes because they have enough money to advertise to millions and millions of people. But like you need that level of volume when your product is worth like pennies or when it's worth $2. So, um, so my whole philosophy was, well, why don't I look for some ways to um, actually create a more premium experience around the film and therefore get the average order value of the movie to closer to $50. So eventually there will be free versions where people can just watch it probably on YouTube or on Hulu or wherever it winds up. But um, before that, um, I, I was, I want to do a window, a self-distribution window where I create, um, a mixture of premium in-person experiences like screening events where we, um, have gear and we have live Q and A's and it's more of an event than just a movie screening. Um, so a mixture of things like that with, um, digital products where, you know, I might have a premium filmmaker version that you could buy for $50 that it, you're not really buying the film. You're buying, you know, the education behind the film, you're buying maybe, um, access to, uh, you know, some of the assets that I created along the way, um, and director's commentary and uh, this, this, and that almost like you would do for like Kickstarter perks. Right. But I didn't crowdfund this. So instead of using the money to fund the movie from crowdfunding, it's almost like doing it after the fact and saying like, do you want to be one of the first people to see the movie, get early access, get all these other perks or go to the in-person experience or buy the, you know, other related products. And then by doing that, you know, if I sold like a hundred of those, which would be very few, um, that would be more than, you know, the movie, like the movie would already break even because I made it for like $6,000, you know? So if I sell like, you know, a hundred and change. So um, if there's a thousand or 2000 or 3000, 
Um, and, and then over time, you can continue to to sell these premium packages, then it becomes more sustainable. And then after that window, you can also put the film on whatever traditional platforms you want. Um, because at the end of the day, I don't want everyone to have to pay $50 to watch the movie. I want people as many people to see it as possible. But I also want the movie to have some sort of better offer for the people that do want to dig deeper into it and do find that valuable because that could mean funding for my next film and then I could hopefully create more education around that film. So I'm just looking at ways to sort of tie that together. So I don't know for sure that I'm going to do that, but that's a, a strategy I've thought about recently. Um, and, uh, you know, it, because also I've, I've been fortunate to sort of grow this audience over the years, um, and have a pretty substantial, you know, email list now of filmmakers that I think would find it interesting. It's, it's just an experiment I want to try and we'll see, I guess, if it, if it is profitable or not, but it, that's sort of where I've been going lately. I think it's really cool. Um, and I really like the idea and I think, cause it, it's that weird thing about, uh, that I, you know, think about as an independent filmmaker is, which is that how, yeah. How do you convince people to, you know, want to pay for your work when I myself as a viewer, you know, if you come up to me and you're like, Hey, like there's this movie, like it's by somebody you've never heard of before. It's, yeah. There's no one you've ever heard of in it. And like, that's it. You know, like yeah. that's it. And I'm like, I'm not going to exactly. spend two hours of my life watching this movie. And like, even yeah. though that's the very thing I'm trying to create, you know exactly. what I mean? Like exactly. it's this weird disconnect there. Uh, uh, and, but you know, one of the things that I've gotten a lot of value from, from doing the historical side of this podcast and learning about, you know, filmmakers throughout history is that it was never really like that. There's always these value added propositions or cultural zeitgeists that are elevating certain films above others exactly. or, or the roadshow experience of a film traveling from city to city and creating that experiential thing that made all the films that we now just like, oh yeah, they just got plugged into this, the, the, the theater system and off they went. No, that's not how it happened. Yeah. And so um, that these sort of inventive ideas to how to make how to bring that experiential element into the real world um, on an independent level, I think is really exciting and really cool because I because we're it's we're still in this brave new world of distribution that no one's really figured out. Yeah. Yet. And no, you bring up such a great point. You you articulated that really well, because I, I was going to try to share something similar before and I, I got off track, but um, I've been thinking a lot about how. Yeah, it's really about like, let's look at film festivals, like what do they do for a filmmaker? Um, it just adds legitimacy. If you get into Sundance, and then if you let's say win an award, um, then uh, you not to say like, there aren't still challenges with distribution, but now that you have all of this leverage, because there is a demand, even if there's no star in the movie the festival becomes the star, you know, or someone might have like a big name producer see their movie and they say, okay, put my name on as executive producer. You know, there has to be some element to elevate it. And for me, I feel like, okay, I, I, I can't rely on film festivals. I hope to screen, like we're doing a, you know, hopefully festival run soon with this movie, but you don't know where you're going to get in. Even if filmmakers that get into Sundance one year, like never get in again sometimes. So it's like, there's no guarantee about that. So how, uh, and, and my films are so low budget that, you know, I, I'm not relying on having an A-list actor who's then going to go promote the movie and elevate it. So 
it just comes down to like, how do I then create that um, for the film myself? If I can't rely on festivals or, you know, a certain level of actor or whatever, I have to rely on myself to build an audience for this movie. And that's why I spend the majority of my life, like making, you know, online, in, you know, education for filmmakers and blogs and all this, because I want them to learn. But then my hope is that when I have a film to release every so many years, um, a handful of those filmmakers, which is all I really need is to come along with me and watch the movie. And then, um, and then it, becomes something that allows me to continue that cycle going. So not everybody's going to have to do it exactly the way that I did it by any means. There's so many ways to do it, but I do think you can, yeah, think of it, of it from that perspective and, and there could be some benefits there. Would you, uh, would you shoot a single man uh, crew film again? Yeah, I would. I was thinking about it yesterday because I, <laughs> I'm in this weird lull where like I finished editing that Disappearing Boy. I have this other film I just wrote, Teacher's Pet, that we're shooting this summer. And there's like a one or two week period where I'm not really working on anything that creative right now. And it's very like disorienting for me when I'm in, in that like phase. So yesterday my mind was just racing. And yeah, I, I was thinking of like, you know, all these one man band movies I could do. So uh, I should be thinking about like what I, what's on my to do list, which is like, I have a bigger movie that's already like I have a deck for and I have written out as a treatment, I should be like working on developing that. But I just I, I had so much fun doing it that it, it makes me want to just do it again, you know, for no other reason than it's just enjoyable. Oh, that's so cool. That's that's amazing. Were there were there any lessons that you learned on Disappearing Boy that have then transferred over to uh, Teacher's Pet? Mm, yeah, I think I think that for me the the natural light and stuff and just uh, keeping it as um, small as I did. I, I think like on Teacher's Pet, there's there is a budget and we will have a crew, but I'm gonna try to keep it as small as possible. Like I might even shoot that movie with a three person crew, even though we could afford to have more people there. Um, because I want to uh force us to, you know, treat it like we're shooting a documentary. I'd say like the biggest thing that worked was about halfway through I realized like, oh, I'm just making a documentary film. And it's like everyone thinks directing is about control, but I think it, it can be about also like relinquishing that control and being an observer of what's going on and then just knowing how to edit and refine and capture what it is in the moment. And so that transcended like working with the actors, for example, um, in the past, I might like I wouldn't say micromanage, but like, OK, let's go through the scene. Let's talk about this line and let's tweak that. And and this time I was like, no, like I trust these actors. We've talked about the scene all morning. Let me see what they do. And I'm just going to sit here and just document it as if I'm just a documentarian. And and then, you know, of course, there's like a little bit of nudging here and there if I have an idea. but but it was about that or like, okay, what does the light look like today? How can we work with that? So it, you know, I think a lot of times people say on a film set, like everything that can go wrong will go wrong, but that's because we have this predetermined vision of what's going to happen in a world that is completely, you know, out of our hands. Like we, we think it's going to be a sunny shot at the beach, but it rains that day or whatever. So um, that's only a problem if it has to be a sunny day at the beach. But if you're going there and you're saying this has to be, um, we're going to collaborate with the elements, you know, if it rains, like that's going to be part of the scene and that's going to make it better. Then you don't see those things as like problems. They become opportunities. So 
Um, so yeah, I think for me seeing it that way, keeping things really minimal, I, that's definitely something I'm going to carry forward. Are you, are you working with a DP on the project? Yeah, I'm planning to, um, I've gone back and forth. Uh, I'm planning to, and I have someone in mind, um, and we're trying to discuss like availability and stuff, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, like I, I, if it didn't work out, like there is a version where I might shoot it myself. Um, but, um, I'm I'm open to sort of both options really and and I'm I'm starting to feel especially as I make more and more films that like I don't want to ever try to recreate what I did on another film um like I if I do DP this like it's not going to be because I did it on the last one it's just going to be because that's the right thing for this project you know uh cuz every movie's different and and you don't want to impose like certain thing just because it worked before right when there might be some newer thing so yeah I'm trying to just continually kind of evolve you know i you mentioning about um the film the the filmmakers uh illusion of the need to control yeah various things that are outside <laughs> of our control um you know i was thinking back in like my historical lens of like oh i guess this kind of you know it maybe it's somewhere rooted like in the old studio system when films were shot under a completely controlled environment mm -hmm. and then in the like the new hollywood era those things kind of got shaken up and everybody came in and shook things up and and then I was kind of playing the tape forward and it's like, well, in today's environment where like most big Hollywood movies are shot like on a green screen, like everything's green screened and it is like completely within our control. And it we're only getting more control with like the advent to AI that is going to you know continue to change our media. Um, it's just it's just so strange how these ideas from other places we then as independent filmmakers can then latch on to and be like, yeah. well, that's how you do it. That's that's what I need. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And actually, like if you go really far back to the beginning, like the silent film era was more like micro budget filmmaking than anything. Like it was just complete like chaos. And then and even, you know, I, I read um, a lot about like Hitchcock and other directors, but like I read this book and he was talking about like some some of his early silent films and they literally sound like micro budget productions where he was doing the makeup himself on on the actors you know and like movies that we now love or that are like timeless um were made that way um and then yeah you look at the control factor and like you know there's no matter what like even on these big studio productions they can have control over the light and they can have their led screens and they can dial in this and that but like they don't have control over the actor that got food poisoning last night, or they don't have control over <laughs> like somebody's in a bad mood. Um, somebody, uh, you know, there's just so many things like somebody shows up late, like, and, and just being able to, to roll with the punches is something that is not only important, but is um, I think more realistic on a smaller scale because the, these big productions are such machines that if something goes off the rails, it's like, oh, so-and-so didn't show up today, um, so we can't shoot. So everybody go home because there's no other option. But, okay, one of my actors didn't show up today. Um, all right, I have another friend I can call. I'm going to call and see if he can come over and, and be in the scene. Or let's shoot another scene. Let's write a scene on the spot and go shoot that. Like, you know, you're not going to do that in, in, you know, universal on some like massive stage. So, you know, that's, and not to say that like one is, is better or worse. They're just completely different things. And I think like, for me, I'm just, I'm more excited 
by the movies like especially when i look at older films like the ones that stand the test of time are usually not the ones where they're like playing with like the most cutting edge vfx of that day that end up looking terrible like 10 years later it's usually like cassavetti's filming a movie in his house with his like you know like friends and family and it being this like mess that ends up being this like most beautiful piece of art that um that people love and and you know that to me is just more exciting but that also doesn't mean that's better that's just my kind of point of view absolutely well it's it's certainly one that i share um now you also run the backlot which is a filmmaking community and incubator uh, that filmmakers can join and uh i was reading on your website that you've dedicated 2023 to guiding members to make feature films uh of their own following your sort of low budget diy model um and uh you know this is very exciting because i you know i'm as we mentioned i'm working on my first feature right now uh in pre-production and um i was just kind of curious you know i wanted to kind of let you uh um give you a little pitch of what my film is and tell you a little bit about it what we're thinking and uh, and just kind of like pick your give a chance to pick your brain here a little bit uh as to you know maybe some things that you might think of that i haven't thought of absolutely thought of before yeah i'd love to hear it so so yeah so this is a, a feature film um it's called withdrawal and it's about a uh, codependent couple of heroin addicts who must endure a night of withdrawal in order to get prescribed a medicine that they hope will cure their addiction. And it follows them over the course of a single night as they try to hold on to their love that has been totally eaten away by heroin. Um it is a micro-budget film, and I'm shooting it in my hometown of Athens, Georgia, where I have kind of all my favors saved up um, to yeah. help make this happen. Um, I'm shooting, the production budget is $40,000. Um, I'm currently rehearsing with my lead actors and filling out the crew. And um, one of the elements of this story is, uh, which is from my personal experience, having gone through drug withdrawal um, a long time ago, uh, is the worst part of it is yes, the physical, the physical part is terrible, but the worst part is the mental side of it. And because you keep going back in the past and wondering how the hell did I get here? How did I do this to myself? You know, and you, you're thinking back to other, the whole story of how you got here. And it felt like an organic story-based opportunity to use a device of flashbacks to try to tell the story of this couple as to how they got here. So our shoot is going to be divided into two periods. We're shooting the flashback scenes at the end of August, beginning of September. And then we're going to reconvene at the end of October, beginning of November to shoot our like a storyline. Um, and uh, that's, that's the plan right now. That's awesome. Well, first of all, that sounds amazing. And, and for like so many reasons, because great story, important, um, like themes and message and everything you're going to talk about, but it's also coming from a personal place. So it's a real, there's so many people that want to make films about subjects like this that don't have the experience, but they think it's, it's going to be cool or like a topic that's going to be edgy. And, and you can always tell when there's like a real, um, real world experience behind something like this. And there has to be. So I think that like, it's a great, idea for a movie it's amazing for a micro budget film it's amazing that like at least for that one component of it you can contain it all in like that one night for half of the movie basically um which is gonna make it you know like from the foundations of what you said 
I would say like this is probably a perfect um, setup for a micro budget film. Um, I think that like it just comes down to then, you know, because you're already like well on your way. So it's not about, okay, how do we um, like think foundationally about like what needs to change? It's more about how do we kind of bring out the best qualities of, of what you're already doing? So obviously the script is, uh, is always like crucial and I'm sure you've been working on that um a, a lot but what about um yeah tell me more about like the flashback type stuff because is that sort of like almost a uh blue valentine where it's like we're we're seeing past and present which i love that movie yeah uh definitely i think that would that is a pretty good modern comp uh yes it is this is like a personal story it's taken me 10 i've like been writing like addiction content for like 10 years and it never felt right and it literally took me 10 years to realize like oh wait like I actually lived like a pretty good like micro budget like <laughs> yeah. single night like single location arc, you know. Yeah. And and the thing that I really like about it is that it's it's yes, it's a story about addiction, but at its core, it's a love story that hinges on a single question: Will they or won't they end up together? And so I structured the flashback beats around those kind of quintessential genre beats of the love story of boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, you know, uh, whatever. Um, so trying to just shape the beats around to answer those questions of the genre, mm-hmm. um, the kind of like the genre form. Um, so that was their structure. Um, and, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, one of the other things that's very hard about telling an addiction story is number one, like the objective is like not very dynamic because the objective is just drugs. You know what I mean? So like, that's kind of lame for like (laughs) crafting a story sometimes. And number two, you know, like really allowing the audience to like hook into the character of like, why, why would they care? Like, where's the heart? No, but you know what? I I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I think that you can sympathize and empathize with, with that character because I, I think it's how it's presented. Like, I think if it comes across as, just mindless like drug use that that's one thing but if it comes across as like we understand like this is it's not about taking drugs it's about escaping pain or it's about like getting away from something that whatever it is right that's that i don't know the story but the more that it feeds into that then of of course you empathize with them and you might even want them to get the drugs at some point right because if you're like okay this per like i've watched um i can't remember exact example but i've watched you know plenty of things where there have been someone who's like addicted to drugs um and so addicted that like if they don't get it like they'll die or they'll have like such severe withdrawal and like you you want to see them out of their misery so like you want them to get the drug just even temporary you're like hey we'll figure out how to get off this later but like you need something so i don't think that i wouldn't worry about like are the characters likable or relatable or anything like that? Like one of my favorite movies of all time is Requiem for a Dream, which is I'm sure a lot like different than what you're doing. Um, but you know, these are our characters that like, you know, I never went through anything like that, but I could still see myself in them in a lot of ways. And I still felt like, you know, empathy toward them. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. Like, I think that like you, I would only worry about that if you weren't who you are and you didn't have your own experience with it, because then it might come off as, you know, it would, would be lacking that depth. But I think you're naturally going to put that into it. And it seems like that's something you're cognizant of. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And it's, it's also really valuable to hear that from like a 
yeah, like someone who like didn't go through this, but like, yeah, could watch Requiem and be like, oh yeah, I see yeah. myself. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. And yeah, I had friends totally. that did go, you know, I've seen it pretty up close and and I, I get it. And like, I think most people have, it's something that's so important and like, there can't be enough, you know, it's, it's like a lot of topics or stories or historical events where like, we can keep going back there because there's so many more angles to tell it from and because they're still relevant today to so many people that we need to find fresh ways of kind of you breathing new life into these these things that can help people um and i'd say like yeah i mean my only question is like because you do have a, a decent budget um where yeah what what's your plan like how are you planning on kind of allocating your budget and and are there any you know issues on that regard or any other that i could you know sort of advise on because it seems like like I said, from if I was working on this, I'd be like, I don't see any issues so far. You know, it's looking pretty <laughs> like a pretty great launching off point. Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest um, thing that I'm wrestling with right now is because I do have the benefit of this budget. But at the same time, I'm also committed to that sort of documentary feel that you were talking about with disappearing boy that was like necessitated by an even a, a much more limited budget. And how do I communicate that to my collaborators? How do I stay true to that within myself? Um, and this does kind of get into some of one of the technical decisions I've made between the like a storyline and then the flashback uh, beats, which is that my plan is to shoot the flashbacks on like, you know, a sort of prosumer cinema camera, whether it's my, Blackmagic 6K, or potentially we might have access to like a Blackmagic Ursa or something like that. Um, uh, and then, but what I'm committed to for the A storyline is I want to shoot this on uh, digital eight camcorders, uh, oh, which nice. is a, a, a medium I use a lot that I like mess yeah. around with a lot. I have, I have ever... an old one. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I've got a, uh, hold on. I've got, I've got my bad oh, boy nice. uh, right here. This okay. this camera is so silly. They actually built like a Polaroid dispenser. Oh, are you serious? I don't I don't think they make the film for it anymore. But you can literally put Polaroid film in oh, here, I and it like I remember spits those. out a slot. That's <laughs> like, hilarious. Yeah, it'll just do like a screenshot, and it'll yeah, it. it's so, so funny. Funny. I like, have one that's probably even older than that. It doesn't have the Polaroid uh, thing, but it's yeah, that's cool though. I love that. That's that's amazing. Um, and so like I love the medium and uh and I kind of I want that feeling of like every time you go out of a flashback which like will look, you know, kind of big and 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 you know, probably be 16 by 9 whatever and then you're pushed back into the like tight yeah. aspect ratio, gritty standard definition image, desaturated yeah. color and you'll just feel like, "Oh, this is gross." Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love it because then that makes everything uh, like that solves so many other things because once you do that, then again, like lighting, if the lighting is not perfect, that's great. That's better. Like it would look weird if it had perfect three point lighting and then you're trying to make it look like this like camcorder style. Um, so that that's actually going to, I think, lend itself well. And like, and I think like in terms of keeping it like that, if that's what you're sort of wrestling with is like, how do you keep that like spirit of very DIY, very simple? I think there's like a few ways to do it. I think there's one is like, I don't know how big you're planning on having your crew, but like, I would rather have like much fewer people on set, like literally like a, the most skeleton crew that you could possibly have and, you know, pay those people better as opposed to like having double the amount of people that you don't need there. Um, so I would think of it that way. I would also think of like the people that you're hiring, just making sure 
that they are like of the mindset of being kind of a jack of all trades because that's what these films need or like you know like on my next film i don't even know if most of the roles will be defined as like i mean like the dp might be but like the sound recordist might just be like person a who is recording sound but also dealing with um, wardrobe and also responsible for um, x y or z and then there might be another all-around jack of all trades that um, is dealing with a, a whole other set of tasks you know so i think there's a way of crewing it up where it's less about like okay you're the dp you're the sound recordist you're this it's just like no we're we're a few people making a movie there's a lot of things we're all going to be sharing hats like generally this falls on you, this falls on me. And I think communicating that upfront, um, if you haven't already like hired a crew, it'll attract the right crew. If you have hired a crew, then, you know, I think it'll just help them understand what they're, what they're working with. And, and then I would say like, if you have money left over, like, or you have the ability, the other thing you could do is just, um, instead of being tempted to say, okay, well, we've got an extra few thousand bucks. So why don't we just pad our crew or why don't we have more this or that? Um, that might be an opportunity to, um, I don't know if there's any, uh, roles in there for like a name actor or something like that, but like, if that is something that's important to you and you can have, um, you know, there's somebody in a scene that is like a recognizable actor that you want to work with and that you can offer a reasonable rate to like that can go so far in terms of, uh, reaching more people. It's something that like, I've never really done on my films. I having to probably on this next film because it's already distributed. Um, but if that's something for you, even that's just distribution aside, that's like personally exciting where there's like, oh, there's like these few actors that might be locals to that area that like you really want to work with. And there's a scene or two that they could do and you could offer them a good rate. Like, um, I think there's a lot of ways that you can spend the money on a indie film and some go a lot further than others. And sometimes like it doesn't actually benefit you to spend in certain ways and it could, if anything, detract. So yeah, I would just keep it, you know, keep it small, keep the communication clear. And if there's extra money, just be creative with where it's spent as opposed to just assuming you have to dump it right back into just making it feel bigger, you know? That's really helpful to hear. And because I've, n I've never had this much money to work with on a project before. Um, and so I've, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, and that sort of, yeah, that, that aspect of being both a recruiter and like team leader and like, you know, collaborator and like bringing people in and communicating the vision effectively. It's like, I've actually, <laughs> I've actually stolen one of your lines. Uh, there was a, a podcast that you did a few, uh, weeks ago and you were talking about approaching people to work on a small budget and you were like yeah i'm not trying to be anybody I no i'm not and i you said i use the line here's all the reasons why you shouldn't work on this film. <laughs> okay. and, and yeah. I, I, I actually have stolen that uh recently <laughs> That's so funny. As, a, as, a, as approaching people with this but no i mean i've i so far i'm talking i haven't like we haven't finalized anything but like i've been talking to people who are excited but i think it's a natural inclination from a lot of different departments to try to like level up or, you know, get things that they feel like they need. And it's hard, it's hard saying no, it's hard yeah. saying like, no, like we need to keep this pared down and simple because you don't want to disappoint people. You don't yes. want, you know, so like, I, and I think if you look for those people though, it, it doesn't have to be as hard. Cause I think what you'll eventually, it might take longer to find them, but I think eventually you'll find the people that, that get it. So like on my film, Josh, who's the lead actor, uh, the reason I wanted to work with him is not only was he a great actor, 
but he also is a filmmaker and he's made his own DIY films and some of them with like basically no crew. So it was like, okay, he gets it. He's not going to be sitting there on set wondering like, is this going to look like garbage? Cause there's no crew. And like, then why am I giving 110%? Like, yeah. You know, so it's like it, the same philosophy would go to, if I was kind of casting my crew, so to speak, where I would want to make sure that like, it's really not about their skill. It's like it, it, yes, of course, if you're recording audio, I want you to know like the difference of a shotgun mic and a, a like a lab wireless mic, but like, <laughs> it, you know, you don't have to, I'd rather take the person who's passionate about the idea and who wants to give 110% than the person that has better gear, but just doesn't really want to be there. And they have a bit more experience, but like, it doesn't matter because they they're lazier. Like I've had people that I've brought onto micro budget sets that like one sound guy in particular who like had only done these like very, very huge productions and we, you know, paid him well for the day, but like he just, uh, you know, he was sort of not, he just wasn't the right fit and he didn't, um, want, he, he made a lot of choices that actually were like very negatively impacted the audio. Um, even though like, we, you know, we treated him well and, and we were happy to have him there. So I would have much rather had someone who's like just fresh out of film school, but is like, no, this is an opportunity. I want to work with new people. Um, I'll go the extra mile. If I screw something up, I'll do it again. No, nope. you know, it's like, I think it's more about having people that will, cause it, you know, there's so much also that like just mentally that weighs on you when you're making a film. And it makes it 10 times harder if the people that you're surrounded with are also second guessing everything that you're doing. And, you know, uh, not that people can't push back. You want people to be able to say like um, that they have a better idea or that like, you know, or, or just offer up their opinion. Um, but in a way that is serving like the overall purpose of the project as opposed to like, no, this that's not how it's done. And like, just because... Yeah you know, some, some other filmmaker did it this way that, you know, you, you heard about, or this person did it that way. Like that doesn't mean that's how it's done. Um, well, it's not how it's done, but like, maybe that's how this movie is getting done. And, and there are people that will want to do it that way. So I think you just have to find them. Yeah, that it does. You did kind of like hit upon like an essential tenet of this project, which is that like, I have watched so many projects of other people that I know of people that I care about who I think are incredibly talented. And I've had projects of my own die on the vine out of that sense of like oh like we've got to level up or like you're you get so focused on like leveling well we gotta we gotta raise the money for to get this like great sound guy or like we can't do it without the sound guy or we can't do it without this i mean i guess this is what i was talking about earlier with the like if only i had xyz and like my commitment to this film is that like we we work with what we have like and mm -hmm. we embrace what we have um and and don't try to get caught in that cycle of if only, yeah, we could just get this, um, yeah. um, which I think is easier for me to uh, embrace when it's like the script or the elements or the actors. But when it came to like finding crew members, it was a sort of a new territory for me. And all of a sudden that interpersonal dynamic kind of like which has just been feeling like a lot, I guess. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And and I think most crew, um, like 99% of crew probably wouldn't be a fit for something like this. So I think as you're talking to people and having discussions, like um, you're going to just come across the majority of people that that rightfully so 
probably see, you know, would, would push back on things from their perspective, not really fully understanding, but again, it's nobody's right or wrong. It's like, they just see it a different way and they want to be working on a different type of project and they might not know your potential yet, but you know it. So like, you have to find the people that believe in it. Um, and sometimes, yeah, those are like literal, it could be, you know, because when you break down, like what you actually need, you said you own a black magic camera, like I'm going to guess you could probably shoot well and cap, you know, get some beautiful footage if you had to, but you can also find someone that you can work with where it's like, you might not even have a traditional DP on a movie. I'm not saying yours, but like just to open up the conversation, like you might have somebody who is a, um, you know, more of a camera operator or first AC, you might want to DP it, but you say, look, I can't hold the camera the whole time and deal with the actors. So why don't we share camera duties? And you're, you know, whatever you credit them as or not is up to you guys, but it's really about like, it's less formal and, and you attract people when it's less formal that are less from that, like professional, like, nope, the call she has to like, look like this, I have to show up at this time. And at a $40,000 budget, even though like, it's certainly it's a lot of money, uh, especially for a first film to work with, but for people used to working on like million dollar projects, nothing's going to ever feel like enough anyway, you know, it's never going to feel like they're on some big set. So, uh, so yeah, I think just try to look out for that, especially with like DPs, uh, for anyone listening to this might be helpful, but you know, there's so many DPs that are amazing and rightfully so like they want their best work to show. So that might mean pushing for more gear rentals, more time, more lighting, more days, blah, blah, blah. And they're only trying to do what's best, you know, for the film and for them. Um, but again, if it's a film like this, that actually might, um, especially in the DP department, that's a common thing where it can just become very unwieldy very quickly because you trust your DP and you want it to look good. So when they tell you, you've got to spend extra money on this lens package, like you do it, but then that means more insurance. And then that means also better lights for that package. And then that means another day of prep to go and pick up the lights. And then it just explodes. So like always yeah. be careful about it, but especially in the camera department, like that's where things can really start to spiral. Um, so it, I think at the very minimum, if you get a DP or a camera assistant or whoever it is that gets what you're doing, that will be like 80% of the battle. Totally. Um, that's great. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate yeah, your insight. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's always, uh, the only last thing I'll say is like, yeah, these are all different. So like take my advice or anyone else's, but also, you know, just find your own path as you will with it because, um, no two movies are alike and like nobody's figured it out. So like, I think at a certain point you just have to go with your gut and, um, and do what you think is best for your production, work with the people that you think are the best fit. But yeah, I'm excited to see it. It sounds like such a cool concept and, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, especially after this discussion, to hopefully be a champion of it moving forward and we'll turn the tables. You'll come on my podcast and promote it sooner than later. Um, oh, it'd be amazing. Yeah. So no, it's cool, man. I'm, I'm excited for you. Thank you so much. Well, let me, uh, let me wrap this up. It's with a two part question for you. Sure. Okay. Part one, when you look to the future, what do you think is the biggest obstacle facing independent filmmaking as a profession, as an art form? Okay. Uh, biggest obstacle is probably going to be at just getting attention because uh, on your work, because there's so uh, many people that are fighting for attention right now. Um, 
you think about when movies came out like in 1992 or whatever out of Sundance, like there was only so many movies made that year. And that was already way more than in the 60s or 50s. Now there's like tens of thousands of movies. Um, and you're also competing with video games and with Apple VR headsets and with like, you know, social media and TikTok and all these other things. So like the attention of people is split and is only going to be split more and more and more. So the biggest challenge, I think, for filmmakers or or people that own film production companies and represent multiple titles is just going to be finding a way to to get that attention of the audience. Um, and and yeah, I mean, there's no easy answers there, but but that's something to certainly keep keep your eye on, I would say. Yeah, well, and but it can also inspire creative solutions like you know you're thinking about yeah. uh, potentially doing, um, and that's really cool, and that pushes the art form forward, um, which I love. I hope, yeah. I mean, that's the hope, and and I think there will be new um, models, especially now as we're seeing streaming kind of showing the the true colors of people aren't really <laughs> getting paid that much. Like the companies aren't necessarily always like that profitable or for the right reasons. Um, and, and I, I think there's going to be some like major shifts in the kind of like tech behind a lot of these streaming platforms that had served us temporarily, but are kind of running out of gas and not sustainable in the long term. So I'm hoping from that, whatever happens as a result of that will, you know, benefit the lower budget filmmakers in some way and, and create a model where like, yeah, people on all levels are able to reach audiences. Um, and I think there are paths for that. Totally. All right. Well, here's part two of the question. Yes. When you look to the future of independent filmmaking, what makes you the most excited? Hmm. So I would say I'm most excited by, um, I guess like the, the first thing that comes to mind is just like all of the amazing films I'm going to get to see that, uh, wouldn't have been able to be made even 10 years ago because of the lack of gear, the lack of funding, um, I talk often about this this filmmaker Hong Sang Soo who makes films for like fifty to hundred thousand dollars, and they all go to big festivals. And like, you know, uh, he he's super innovative, and I feel like we're going to see so much more of that. We're starting to see ten thousand dollar movies that are getting theatrical releases and getting written up in Variety and all over the place. And and that again was like unheard of, and it's still unusual. But I think it's going to become more and more realistic and, and we're going to see more of it. So I'm excited to see those movies and I'm excited to hopefully be a part of that ecosystem and put my my own films into the world um, in that way. And, and you know, not feel like just because it was done on a certain budget, it can't reach a lot of people. It can't even be seen theatrically. It can't go to a certain festival like I think the floodgates are sort of opening, um, even though there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of, you know, if you even want to think of it that way, you know, there's a lot of other films being made. Um, hopefully there's going to be enough room kind of for everyone. I love that. Um, well, the last thing I just want to say here before we, before we sign off is that there's this idea of service, you know, like of doing service, like to an art form, to your peers. Mm -hmm. And I think in the story that we have of ourselves as filmmakers or of filmmakers in general, there's this notion of like, once I'm famous, once I have the money, then I can donate to charity or then I can be like Martin Scorsese and like be a film restorer or whatever. Yeah. And very seldom is that notion of service like really rolled into sort of like on the way up and like yes. as you go. And this is something that I think you exemplify 
And I think that it is a very rare quality and an amazing principle. And I guess I just want to thank you for that. I appreciate Um, that. Yeah. The service you have done has helped me immeasurably. And just from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for your years of work. That is, that means a lot. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I, I actually didn't, you know, think of it ever in that context, but I, I do think that there is, I feel like every filmmaker has a duty at the very least to themselves to make films and to make art. Because I think even if you do nothing else but that, you are contributing to the evolution of cinema and what's possible and what people, you know, you can make a film that 10 people watch, but one of those people, it might change their life, you know, or it might inspire them to make a film uh, based on your technique that opens up a whole new genre. So like, um, I think that, you know, creating art is is something that we all need to do just to get better at our craft but also to kind of further the craft um and then beyond that you know i think sharing what you know like my, for me it's just i just want to share the things that i wish somebody told me because i could have saved years of my life if somebody you know just or at least like years of stress of like worrying about things <laughs> that i had no control over that I wish somebody just told me or, or like just understanding like the element of luck in filmmaking and, and how like, yes, you have to work hard, but you, there is a right place, right time thing too. And a lot of what we do is a gamble on every level and, and knowing that like, not just like guessing that, but actually knowing that firsthand, like I want to share that, like, I'm just motivated to share that stuff with people because again, I, I see people sometimes like write things online that say, I didn't get into such and such film festival, like I'm going to quit filmmaking. And like, I'm just like, these people probably didn't even watch your movie, you know? So I I just, when I see things like that, it just makes me want to help because I was that person and still am. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think if we can all help each other and, and be honest about what's actually going on, like, you know, I try to share, like, if a film I make doesn't make a lot of money, like I tell people, I'm not going to try to pretend it made a million dollars if it didn't, I want people to know the realities of distribution. So, you know, I, I, you know, always respect other filmmakers like yourself who are sharing your process. And I learned a lot from this discussion, just as you did. So yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And, and uh, you know, you ask great questions. And, and this was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Hey, what do you have coming up that people should be on the lookout for? Yeah, so I have my uh, yeah disappearing boy will hit some festivals soon. I don't know exactly when and where we're we're navigating that now, um, but uh, we'll also have teachers pet out sometime next year. But if people want to follow along, they can go to my newsletter noamkroll.com, n-o-a-m-k-r-o-l-l dot com slash newsletter, um, and then you know that's also the URL for my blog, and you can find my podcast and. Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff on there. But, um, but yeah, uh, otherwise, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll do around two of this. So I'll have you one day on the podcast and, and we'll continue the discussion. But this, this was a, a good starting point. Ah, uh, man, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'll have links to all that stuff down in the show notes. So if you're a filmmaker and you are not following Gnome Kroll, dude, what are you doing? Get on it. Um, okay. Gnome, thank you so much. And uh, I'll be back next week with more of my own filmmaking journey on this project. And until then, 
that's a wrap. Traveling shoes, shoes, 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 traveling shoes, shoes,